Well, we'll try to see what we can do on this last um, second part of the story, but it's been um, exciting to come to RCA. My wife and I have come uh, every year since 2016. Um, when I mentioned um, I came back to full communion with the church and RCI was a very important um, part of that process. And so as a revert, one that was raised Catholic but left and came back, um, some of these things were familiar, but there was much learning that I still need to do, even after studying six years um, prior to even consider a return, um, RCI played a, a significant role. And I know for, for Kate, my wife, um, it was very um, insightful because she was hearing from another voice besides just myself as we've been working through some of these things and so we've loved to come i've served in different capacities with rci whether it's setting up tables and chairs or putting away or teaching a few lessons uh, that i get privileged to do which which is exciting um so it's just been a joy to to be a part of rcia and i'm thankful for each one of you here this evening and this year um considering the faith considering potentially being Catholic. If you're not, that's awesome. Um, and I would encourage, if that's the case, to, to be patient, to take your time, to really um, believe, to really agree, and not just go through any motions, whether you're getting married or for any other reasons, right? The church isn't trying to prod you quickly to get through. Um, the church wants you to fully embrace the faith. And if that takes multiple years, it takes multiple years and I've known people where it's been they've gone through RCA four times before they come into full communion with the church. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. Don't feel rushed, I guess, is what I'm saying. But come as soon as you can as well. Right. Um, because it is just amazing uh, all that the church has to offer us when we really start understanding, appreciating what God's given us in the church. So we'll move on to, to a number three where we're going to start looking at each line of the prayer. Right to some level here, very high level, obviously. And hopefully there'll be a few different nuggets that you take away uh, from this. So letter A, God our Father transcends the categories of the created world. To pray to the Father is to enter into his mystery as he is, and as the Son has revealed him to us. We talk, I talked about the mystery a little bit before, right? It's, it's to enter into God himself which is mystery. We can't fully comprehend or know or understand this or experience it all, but it's it's to allow ourselves to allow him to be who he is. We're not trying to put anything on him, whether we've had a good experience with an earthly father or a bad one, right? Because those can, can affect how we think about God the Father sometimes. And if we've had a bad experience, that's unfortunate. We need We need healing from that. The Father can give us the true good father the perfect one and in order to do so we're gonna to have to enter into his mystery as he is as it says we, we have to allow that in our life and as the son has revealed him so the son has made known the father to us and so we learn what that is through the catechism through the scriptures and we enter into that mystery and find the healing that only he can give us that we need in many different ways we need healing and that's what salvation is at the end of the day is, is healing we need healing from the sin. Jesus said that he hadn't come for, you know, the righteous, the perfect. He came for the sick, right? Those that know I need healing, that can raise their hand and say, I'm, I'm sick, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. We have to get to that point. If we're, if you're not there, we need to get there, right? We have to see that. That's our state. We need healing. We need God. We need him to touch us. We need to know the Father's love in a, in a way that maybe we've never known before, and that comes through through prayer. 
and through the sacraments. Point B, while Jesus alone is the Father's Son by nature, we too become his children by the grace of divine adoption. We've been adopted into his family, true children in Christ, right? And to understand what it is to be a child of God. Point C, we can adore the Father because he has caused us to be reborn to his life by adopting us as children in his own son, his only son. By baptism, he incorporates us into the body of Christ through the anointing of his spirit who flows from the head to the members. He makes us other Christ. God indeed, who has predestined us to adoption as his sons, has conformed us to the glorious body of Christ. So then you who have become sharers in Christ are appropriately called Christ, the new man reborn and restored to his God by grace says, first of all, father, because he has now begun to be a son. So we are little Christ. That's what a Christian is. Did you know that? That's, that's where that name comes from. That's what that means, that we're little Christ. We're to be like him. We're to be, um, we are his brother. We're called that in scripture, a brother of Christ, sister, brothers and sisters with him. God is our father, and we're to be little Christ in the world. That means we're to be these people that go out and spread this aroma of him and his aroma to those that are the children of God is, is pleasant aroma. But scriptures would say to those that are children of the devil, it's a stench. There's a there's an animosity, right? By the aroma that one carries of Christ out to the world, right? They they crucified him. That aroma was not pleasant to those that crucified him, right? They killed him. And he said they'll do the same to you if you follow me. So following Christ is a high demand. And he tells you to count the costs to follow him, that you need to lose your life in order to find it, that you may be persecuted, you may die, you may suffer. Whatever that might be here in this country, we're pretty privileged at the moment, but things are changing daily, it seems. And in other countries, people are in prison today. They've had their heads cut off today for being Christian, and that could come very well to us as well. And so to follow him is a high calling. Um, to be his child and to walk in a Christ-like manner. Point D, the free gift of adoption requires on our part continual conversion to new life. Praying to our Father should develop in us two fundamental dispositions. First, the desire to become like him. Though created in his image, we are restored to his likeness by grace. And we must respond to this grace. We must remember and know that when we call God our Father, we ought to behave as sons of God. Second, we need a humble and trusting heart that enables us to turn and become like children. For it is to little children that the Father is revealed. What would he not give to his, to his children who ask, since he has already granted them the gift of being his children? Notice the continual conversion. So there's, there's not a one-time, one-and-done with knowing Christ and encountering him. We have to be constantly transformed and changed. That's what he does. He transforms us. But that takes on our part, this willingness, right, to come, this willingness to be humble, to be like children, to be trusting, to know that we don't have it all together, right? And we can tell him so. Like, I'm, I've failed at home. I've failed at work. I've failed with this. I've failed with that, right? I need help. Help me. I, the, the humility to turn to the Father and ask for the things that we might want to ask for. And the, the prayer will teach us the right things to ask for as well. 
but we must respond to this grace. We can't just sit by and sit on our hands. There, there's a there's an activeness in our life uh, to this. Point E, when the church prays, our Father who art in heaven, she is professing that we are the people of God, already seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and hidden with Christ in God. Yet at the same time, here indeed we groan and long to put on our heavenly dwelling. Christians are in the flesh, but are not living according to the flesh. They spend their lives on earth, but are citizens of heaven. Do you inwardly groan for heaven? Or are you pretty attached to the things of this world? These are questions we need to ask ourselves, right? Is this true of me? The scriptures actually say that, that, that Christians are, are longing to go home. They, they want to be, they'd rather die and be with Christ than stay. But if they stay, they know they have mission work to do, right? There's something I'm to be doing because I've been uniquely called. I've been uniquely gifted. There's kingdom work for me to do. That's what he's called me to. Do you live as citizens of heaven or is your citizenship more here in this country, which is God bless America and the freedoms that we have here. And we're, we're proud to be American and happy for that. But are you more attached here than to the things of God in heaven? Where's, where's your eye at for home, right? as we look into some of these things. So what is heaven? Our Father who art in heaven, what is heaven? Heaven is the place where holiness and justice reign. It is our true home in the Father's house. Jesus said in John 14 that he is going away to prepare a place in heaven, in the Father's house, right? Which speaks of the temple. When he's speaking of the Father's house, that's temple language with all the different rooms that were within the temple, right? For the priests that live in there. He's going to prepare a place because we're a priestly people. Did you know that? That when you're baptized, you're baptizing the prophet, priest, and king. So you're a priestly people, you're a kingly people, and you're a prophetic people. All three of those should be a part of our life in some way, shape, or form. And so he goes away to prepare uh, in the Father's house. Heaven will be on earth. It's coming here. I don't know if we realize that. We talk about heaven as a, this distance thing, which, which it is. But it's coming to earth. In the new heavens and new earth, it's going to be here. Heaven will be on work, earth. God will dwell with men forever. You can read it in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 3. So that whole movement from creation to new creation is going to bring heaven on earth. Eden is going to be restored. Everything that was cursed and fallen will be brought back all new and perfect forever. Heaven's coming to earth. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not only just now, but in the future, it's coming to here. Number four, hallowed be your name. The petition to hallow God's name corresponds with what Jesus previously taught, what he previously taught in the gospel of Matthew. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. The term to hallow is to be understood here, not primarily in its causative sense, only God hallows, makes holy, but above all in its evaluative sense, to recognize us holy, to treat in a holy way. Beginning with the first petition to our Father, we are immersed in the innermost mystery of his Godhead and the drama of salvation. Asking the Father that his name may be made holy draws us into his plan of loving kindness for the fullness of time, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ that we might be holy and blameless before him in love. 
And there we, we see that whole mystery of his Godhead. The Godhead is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what that's that's referring to, the mystery of entering into that. And the drama of salvation is that whole storyline we talked about. That's that's the drama. That's God's story that we enter into as we pray the Our Father. Point C, the Lord says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And although he shows patience for the sake of his name, the people turn away from the Holy One of Israel and profane his name among the nations. For this reason, the just ones of the old covenant, the poor survivors returned from exile and the prophets burned with passion for the name. I love that. The prophets burned with passion for the name. God, as we talked about in that deliverance, that rescue, he brought them out. He gave them the law. He gave them truth to live by, right? And if you walk in these ways, you'll be a light and a blessing to the nations. But if you don't, you're going to profane my name. And he warned them at that time, curses would come upon them for doing that. There would be judgment that came. That's what this exile is that it talks about. So when I talked about with Solomon, there was world peace with him, right? And we wondered, was he going to be the seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent? Because it's certainly looking like it. There's world peace. There's this wise man that's, that's ruling the earth in that sense. He's built the temple. It's magnificent. It's beautiful. But then he dies. And his son Rehoboam comes upon the scene. And with Rehoboam, the kingdom is soon divided and decimated. And they go into exile because they've lived sinful lives. They didn't stay the path that King David was trying to direct them upon. They go into exile. They, they've, they've been an abomination, uh, and, and God has judged them in that. And so some of them come back after exile. And so understanding exodus and exile also are important for understanding salvation. And salvation, what that, you know, the depth of it right? Um, entering into what that really is uh, when judgment comes and when forgiveness is brought forth as well. And so this idea of being holy as the Lord our God is holy, that Leviticus quotation right there in, in point C is repeated in the New Testament. So this isn't just an Old Testament thing. In First Peter, he says the exact same thing. He quotes Leviticus saying that we're to be holy as the Lord is holy. There's a calling for us to live a certain kind of way. One that's experienced salvation is to be motivated by that to go live a certain kind of way. So point D, the sanctification of his name. That's the setting apart. Sanctification, the setting part of his name, the lifting high of his name, the hallowing it, the sanctification of his name among the nations depends inseparably on our life and our prayer. It is this name that gives salvation to a lost world. But we ask that this name of God should be hallowed in us through our actions. For God's name is blessed when we live well, but is blasphemed when we live wickedly. As the apostle says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We ask then that just as the name of God is holy, so we may obtain holiness in our souls. The prayer to hallow his name is calling upon him to help us to live a holy life, to, to be a blessing and a light to others, to not turn them away from Christ because of our life and our actions in a bad way. It might turn them away because we live a holy life and they're not attracted to that as they weren't to Christ in his holy life, but not because we live a life that's 
not holy, right? Turning them away through scandal or through our actions, right? So we're to be this holy people. And by a way of practical application, we can look at this passage from Colossians as well as others. I won't read those tonight, but I would encourage you to look at those and those highlighted words there really guide us into what we would want to put on in our life and what we want to put off in our life. We're to put sin to death in our life in order that we might grow in holiness. So we'll go to point five, your kingdom come. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There again, we're getting this stuff that's all the way from the foundation of the world. These plans he's already has. He has kingdom plans in mind because he's the king and we're to be a part of his kingdom, right? And he's saying, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. And Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Implication, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If, if we're thinking we're going to inherit the kingdom and we're expecting to go to heaven when we die, that has implications for how we live now. And this tells us we're, we're, to, we're to give money away. We're, we're to live completely radically different than the world does, right? But are we? What are we storing up? What are we buying? The next house, the new car, whatever it is we have to have, whatever gadgets. And those can be well and fine. But where's it at in proximity to what I'm really supposed to be doing about storing up treasure in heaven? And you'll notice here, it, it, there's a paradox with this. And so the point there, almsgiving serves as a diagnostic of faith and is a cleansing power of the heart. Paradoxically, by giving alms, one stores up treasure in heaven in contrast to the rich fool who stored up treasure for himself. In other words, we can kind of test what our faith is. You know, what, what's it really made out of? Looking at your checkbook and your finances will tell you one thing. Not the whole story, but how much are you giving away versus how much you're spending on yourself is going to be a, a way to look, you know, because like we kind of wonder sometimes, well, what, what kind of faith do I really have? How do I measure it or gauge it or look at it, right? Well, Almsgiving tells us, because how attached are we to that stuff, right? How attached are we to our time, our money? Are, are we giving ourselves in service to the poor and to the needy and to others? And there's a lot of different ways that we serve the poor. Um, and, and you can do that actually through instruction as well, you know? And there, there's more than, than one way of doing that, um, more than just writing a check, which is kind of easy sometimes to do, honestly, right? I want to write that check out to the poor and mail that off, but... But what about getting our hands dirty with them? What about seeing them, looking them in the face, touching them, right? We might be called to that. You may be called to that in, in ways that, that some aren't, but we should think about it as well. Do we just walk by people and we don't look at them? And these could be just neighbors, right? We're not talking about a stinky old bum on the street. I'm talking about neighbors we walk by, right? Friends, workmates, other such people. These things need to reorient our life. Kingdom has to change the way we think and pray, ultimately, at the end of the day. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All these things are instructional for us about kingdom. The poor in spirit recognize their need for God and his grace. They are unattached to this world. 
They find their security in the Lord and rely on his mercy rather than their merits or material wealth. If we're going to be blessed, we have to be humble. We have to realize we're these poor. We're these needy ones, right? These are the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom. These are the ones he's going to say, come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. And as we see, that comes down to um, how we live and how we are attached or not attached to the things of this world. People who pray for the coming of the kingdom of God rightly pray that the kingdom of God might be established in themselves and that God might reign in us. This starts changing the way we pray, the Our Father, in some ways, and I'll just explain that later. Um, and so as we think about the kingdom, we can start thinking about how is our lives more of this world or the one to come? And what might we need to do to change our life um, by God's grace, this is all by God's grace, right? We, we can't just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps to get this stuff done. God has to do it in us and through us. We have to beg for that grace. We're these poor people, sick people that need healing and need him to change us in this way. Point B, God's kingship is his nature. He is the king of all creation. And the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, refers primarily to the final coming of the reign of God through Christ's return. But far from distracting the church from her mission in the present world, this desire commits her to it all the more strongly. Man's vocation to eternal life does not suppress, but actually reinforces his duty. Thank you. To put into action in this world the energies and the means received from the creator to serve justice and peace. In other words, how we think about the kingdom, how we think about God as king, we'll start redirecting our lives and the actions that we take, the, the looking out for justice and peace. How do, we, how do we make that flourish in the world or not? Let's drop down to, to letter E as we start running out of time. The kingdom of God lies ahead of us. It's brought near in the word incarnate. It is proclaimed throughout the whole gospel and it has come in Jesus's death and resurrection. The kingdom of God has been coming since the Last Supper, and in the Eucharist, it is in our midst. The kingdom will come in glory when Christ hands it over to the Father. So we're, we are looking forward to this kingdom to come as we pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it has implications for the here and now. And this verse from 2 Peter is a very practical application for us, as we've been hearing when we talked about hallowing his name and his kingdom coming. It says, the Lord is not slow about his promise. This is the one we're looking for his return. It says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire? But in accordance with his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth, for righteousness is at home. All this is to be moving us, right? What I mean, those are some sober words about this coming. And his slowness is so that we might tell other people about Christ, might invite them to come and see, 
he's patient. He doesn't want any uh, to perish. He don't want any. He doesn't want any to be lost. He wants all to be saved. So what are we doing to help uh, with that mission? What are we doing to spread that good news uh, in the world, in our neighborhood, in our workplaces, right? With the people we meet. Are we ashamed of Christ and the gospel? Are we timid to, to talk about him? Um, can we just say, come and see? Didn't have to use his name, didn't have to say anything else. You tell him to come and see, come to RCIA, come sit with me at RCIA, come and see. And there they can hear more, right? Um, as simple as that. Or we could tell them a whole lot more. If, if you're equipped and encouraged to do so, we could tell them more of the story, right? Where they're at in the story, the excitement uh, that revolves around that. And so 5.1, the kingdom and the church. There's some beautiful things here when it comes to the kingdom and the church as well that I'm going to skip over for tonight, but hopefully you would take some time to look back at that. One of the things there is the name change that I spoke about earlier. So Peter's name was changed to that. His name was Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter. And as we talked about earlier, when there's a name change in the Bible, there's something significant with that person. And as we'll see, Peter was significant. He was the first pope. We can trace Pope Francis all the way back to Peter. We have the historical lineage that can follow that. We can see the scriptural story supports all this. And that's what some of this does when you look at Isaiah chapter 2. You marry that up with Matthew 16 and the kingdom revolving around these things. So the church, the kingdom of God is mysteriously present in the church where Christ reigns as king and shepherds his people through the magisterium. It's just a beautiful, beautiful aspect of the kingdom when we think about the kingdom and the church. But unfortunately, we don't have time to do justice to that one tonight. Number six. Your will will be done on earth. In all things, God's will should be the central object of our discernment, for it alone is acceptable and perfect. In other words, what we're focused, we should be, and I fail at this just like everyone else, right? I'm, I don't live half of what I'm talking about tonight. That's why this lesson's more for me than it is for you. That's the beauty of studying, is that God's teaching me all these things. He's calling me to repent and turn and, and grow in these things, right? I just get the privilege to try to articulate some of that to you all. But his will should be the central object. It, it, we're focused on what is his will? What does he desire to be done in our lives on the earth? How do I conform myself to that? How do I get more in line with his will? And, and everything in me is going to fight against that, right? Because I'm, I'm a fleshly person. I'm a sinful person. I'm not going to want to conform to his will. But that's what we need to do. It's for our own good. How do we get there? It takes prayer. It takes begging for the grace to change us to that. And so the Apostle Paul tells the Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We have to have our minds transformed. God's word is a primary place, and through prayer, we can get our minds changed, right? We can think God's thoughts when we, when we know this book, and that's how we can have a renewing of our minds so that we can move our will to get in line with God's will. We can discern what his will is by reading this and studying the scriptures. We know what he wants, and most of it's pretty straightforward and easy. It's us trying to actually get conformed to it, right? Everything in us is repulsed and fighting against that. 
um, because we're sinful and we, we're in rebellion against that. And so number C, or point C, the way of God's kingdom to come is the easiest thing in the world to understand and the hardest thing in the world to accomplish. Simply turning over our will to God. We, begin, we can begin to do this even if we do not do it completely. Sin means that my will is in rebellion against God. By saying and meaning, thy will be done, I declare my will to end this rebellion and make peace with God by submitting my will to his. By willing what he wills, thy will be done is both submissive and active. For his kingdom comes by our submitting to his will and our working it, our working to carry it out. We can begin, even if we can't do this well or completely, right? To think, well, I can't do it anyway, so not even start. Like that, that's not the calling. He's calling us to do something, right? To, to acknowledge, I can't do anything. Help me. Help me to, to be what you desire me to be. And, and you notice how we could just rattle through the Our Father prayer and just say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and then not think through how deep this is, how how high of a call, like you, maybe you don't want to pray that prayer anymore for a while, because are you, are you being honest with it? Are you being faithful to it? Like he's calling us to, right? But I would encourage you to do so and, and fall under the umbrella of we can begin to do this even if we don't do it completely, right? God meets us in that, but it's our acknowledging like, yeah, maybe I have rushed through that quite a few times. Maybe I haven't really got the depth of the Our Father and what, what he's going for there. Maybe I do need to ask him to teach me to pray, right? I, this is certainly true for me. Um, and this study's made that even more, more clear in my life, right? Um, that I need to do so. And so as we close in here, we'll skip over that bullet point. We'll go to number seven. Give us our daily bread. There's there's a lot here um, that really kind of challenged me in ways that I didn't think about. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna land on on C as I'm trying to balance the time and what we got left. Um, C says the presence of those who hunger because they lack bread opens up another profound meaning of this petition. The drama of hunger in the world calls Christians who pray sincerely to exercise responsibility toward their brethren, both in their personal behavior and in their solidarity with the human family. This petition of the Lord's Prayer cannot be isolated from the parables of the poor man Lazarus and of the last judgment. So as we think about give us our daily bread, it's talking about that opening up this whole other perspective of just hunger in the world. And these two parables, the poor man Lazarus, he, he had sores all over him. He sat at the rich man's house in front of his gate, right? The rich man probably stepped over him every day or at least went around him. He knew he was there. He didn't do anything for him ever. But that's that parable. And then the last judgment, it, the, the, the parable was talking about, all comes down to, you know, what did you, what did you do? Did you give a glass of cold water in the name of Christ? Did you do anything for the poor? And these people respond like, well, we didn't, we didn't know. And the other people were like, well, when did we do that for you, Lord? When did we clothe the poor and the needy? You know, they were just doing the life that God had called them to do. But as we pray this prayer, this opens up this new dimension, right? About hunger for the poor physically, 
and then we have the poor spiritually as well. And point D gets at that. This petition with the responsibility it involves also applies to another hunger from which men are perishing. And these are the words of Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy that he said to Satan in the desert when he was tempted. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is by the word he speaks and the spirit he breathes forth. Christians must make every effort to proclaim the good news to the poor. There is a famine on earth, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. There's a famine and we're to take that bread, that word of God to people, the gospel, that, that's telling others about Jesus Christ. That's inviting them to come and see. There is a famine out there. People are hungry. They might look like they have it all together, but as you serve them, as you get to know them, as you live a holy life in front of them, then we want to bring them the word of God. There, there's a famine out there. We're called to spread that news. All of us have been called to do that. Any Christian is to be taking that message out. It's for everyone to do. Point E, the Eucharist is our daily bread. The Father in heaven urges us as children of heaven to ask for the bread of heaven. Christ himself is the bread from heaven. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'll have the privilege to talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the Eucharist uh, in a future lesson, which I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about that upcoming. Number eight, forgive us our debts as we, for, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now this is very, very challenging when you think about that statement. As, forgive us our debts or our sins, we're asking God, as we have forgiven others. So is there anyone that you haven't forgiven? Are there things that you need to do to make right before you could pray that prayer with integrity? And have we pondered that as we entered into asking this of the Lord when we pray, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins as we've forgiven our debtors? Number, or a letter D, what is it to forgive? It is not a feeling or a thought, but a choice. It's a choice. It's not in our power. It is not in our power not to feel or to forget the, an offense, but the heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit turns injury into compassion and purifies the memory and transforming the hurt into intercession. To forgive is to will the good of those who do not deserve it, as God does to us. Forgiving is hard. Right. And it doesn't mean we forget what happened when someone's offended us, but that pain and that hurt has to get transferred into compassion that intercedes for them. And it does so authentically. And only God's grace can can move us to do that. And then we realize how much we've been forgiven as it ended there. When we understand how much we've been forgiven, we forgive. And this really happened in my life when I when I first had that conversion I told you about when I started reading the Bible. At that time, I wasn't speaking to my mom. My parents divorced when I was a junior, like I said, and I wrote my mom off at that time because she had, she caused it basically. And so I remember telling people like, you know, I'll probably never speak to my mom again, or I may never see her again. Um, and I was thinking I wouldn't even go to her funeral, you know, if she died. I mean, I, I hated her. And once I had that encounter, that verse where it 
says, you know, that we're to forgive as, as we've been forgiven really had to change my life. And so I, I made things right there. I got things made right. But that was all by God's grace and changing us to turn the pain where we've been hurt. To forgive is a choice. It doesn't mean the feelings go away. It doesn't mean that you have to pretend like it never happened. We turn it to intercession. We turn it to compassion. We, we pray for them. And number nine, lead us not into temptation. We'll go for letter C. Lead us not into temptation implies a decision of the heart. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You cannot serve two masters. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. In this ascent to the Holy Spirit, the Father gives us strength. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation, will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. God doesn't tempt anyone. The scriptures are clear on that. He does allow it, and he does provide a way of escape every time. But we have to want to choose it. We have to endure the temptation. And there's a good side of temptation because it kind of shows us what we're made of. Most of the time we, we fall and we fail. We need to get back up and go to confession. But that temptation is showing you your weakness. It's showing you what you really are so that you can turn that to the Lord and say, help me, help me to grow so that I could overcome that the next time it comes at me, right? And so praying, lead us not into temptation is to pray for the strength to overcome the temptation. That's what it's driving at. If you read these other um, bullet points, it will drive that home a lot better than I was able to do right there. And number 10, to finish out as we're in the closing seconds here, deliver us from the evil one. We talked about in the beginning that cosmic battle that's at place, right? And, and it will continue to, to go until the end of time. Our soul is raging war within ourselves. So the soul and the flesh is even at conflict within ourselves. Plus, we have another battle exteriorly from this enemy. And so we're praying that he would deliver us from that. As Jesus prayed in John 17, not that we'd be taken out of the world, but that we would be protected from the evil. And we're praying for that shield of protection. And then he's given us this armor to put on. There's actually armor that we're supposed to put on. If you read Ephesians chapter 6, there's a whole armor that we put on. One of them is the shield of faith to put out these flaming arrows that the enemy would shoot at us. So with that, we'll close. We'll pray. I think I might be a couple minutes past due as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the privilege to think about the scriptures, to think about the prayer that the Lord Jesus gave us. We pray you'd help us to pray it as you desire, that you'd give us the grace to change our perspective, that you'd help us to live these things out in new ways, baby-stepped more towards you, that you'd meet us where we're at in our, our weakness and our need, our sinfulness, our need of healing and forgiveness, and that you would bless each one of these here and encourage them and draw us near to yourself as we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.